Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, hey, we're glad that you guys did show up. Thank you for gathering this morning at Bergen Park Church. You know, I was sharing with the first service that, you know, as a church, we're not a place to gather. We're not an hour on Sunday morning. We're a community. A community that shares the same Father, that shares the same Savior, that shares the same Spirit, that should share the same loves and passions. And that means we, we do life together. I don't know about you, but doing life together has been, been challenging over this last 18 months. And uh, if I could be honest, I'm, I'm exhausted. And I'm exhausted in that as, as we kind of transition out of this one season, I feel like we're just in this other season. Now, it's good. It's a good season, understand, but I'm still trying to recover and get a vision for where we as a church, what does it look like for us to be the church? And one of the pleas that I have this morning is, is if you call Bergen Park Church home, if I am your pastor, if we are your leaders, we, we need your help. We need your help. We need your help in terms of what it looks like for us to serve the body as people come in together. We're going to start getting some things back. Do you remember coffee? We used to serve coffee. We have to get coffee back. And to get greeters back. You know, one of the things that's happened is like we've had an explosion of kids, which is amazing, but at the same time, we've had kind of this exodus of volunteers. And this isn't a a blame, it's just saying, you know, this is kind of where we are, and it's been such a challenge. And so I just want to encourage you, if you benefit from Bergen Park Church, if you call this church home, we need your support, we need your love and your care, because we can't do this um, just from me or from the front, or just from a few leaders We are the church. And if Evergreen is going to know the vitality of the Lord that we serve, his love and his power, then we have to bring that vitality together as we gather and as we serve and as we care for one another. We are the body of Christ together. And and guys, I miss you and I love you. And we just need your support, whether that's giving or serving, whether that's kind of casting a vision, getting into community, recognizing that if we don't live that vital life for Christ and word and deed, then this community is not going to see that representation of who the Father is and what it means to follow him, to be with him, and to become like him. Do you see that? We need your help. And so thank you guys for gathering this morning. That's my family moment. And we love you. Hey, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 8. You know, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he taught with authority. He proclaimed the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that was ever preached. And then he comes down the mountain and Jesus taught as one who had authority. But see, he taught with his words with authority. But how do we know the authority that Jesus has? What does that authority mean for us? And so what he did in word, and see in chapter 8, he does in deed. He does in action. That Matthew chooses out of the thousands upon thousands of miracles that Jesus does, he picks nine. Could you imagine having all the miracles of Jesus laid out, I don't know, I guess on your dirt floor back then, and you're thinking, okay, which ones am I going to choose? And if Matthew chooses nine, then these are a pregnant nine. They're supposed to reveal something about the person of Jesus 
and his authority. Because see, if we don't understand what Jesus did, we're not gonna really understand the authority of what he said. And his words may come to us as great advice or nice teaching or a different way of seeing the world, but they won't come as the word of God, which is living and active, unless we recognize the authority of the one who is teaching us. And we see that authority in what he does as he touches a leper, as with his word, he heals a paralyzed man. And this week, we're gonna see a series of three more miracles beginning in verse 18. So let's jump into it, Matthew Chapter eight, chapter 8, picking it up in verse 18. The word of the Lord. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, meaning the other side of the lake. And a scribe came to him and said, Hey, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but... Jesus was asleep. And they went and awoke him and saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And then he rose and he rebuked the wind and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when they had come to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gerardines, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, then send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went to the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen, going into the city, told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Father, meet us here, we'd ask. Lord, your presence is with us, but we are not aware. You tell us that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That we're seated with Christ, which means, Father, you're, you're just to our left. You're, we're in a place of intimacy and a place of authority as we are seated in Christ, the children of God, brought out of darkness into light. But, Father, so often we don't see ourselves as we truly are because we don't know you for who you truly are. That this world and its storms and the challenges that we face and the stories of our culture have more power over our emotions and our desires and our heart than the truth of who you are, Jesus, as the Son of God with authority over all things. So, Father, may your authority calm our hearts, 
cleanse and clear our minds. And Father, bring the reality and the clarity of your truth to us, we'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a challenging set of stories. I don't know if you noticed. It's not your typical kind of Sunday school lesson. Demons, calming a storm, discipleship. That after Jesus taught, what he's beginning to do is you'll start to notice that the crowds, they're starting to diminish. The good news, the warm feelings of Jesus' message start to dissipate and what you start to see is the authority of who Jesus is and these huge crowds start to dwindle down to just a small number that Jesus is tired after teaching and healing and caring for the community and he's saying, let's go to the other side of the lake and see the other side of the lake, guys, is the other side of the lake. It's the unclean side. And did you notice once they got to the other side, what a great destination. Tombs, Gentiles, demoniacs, the scene begins to change, that it shifts from the glory of the Sermon on the Mount with his disciples. And as he's leaving, there's these two men who follow and say, hey, we're ready for the next level. We're ready to step it up. We know what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus engages with these two, and notice the text says they're already disciples, so they've already been with him. They're starting maybe to become like him, to see who he is, and yet there's some challenges in their discipleship. They don't quite understand what it means to follow Jesus. And so through these two individuals, we discover what does it look like for us to truly follow Jesus, but to follow Jesus as Jesus is, and can I say, not as we simply want him to be? That sometimes we like to craft Jesus into the comfortable Jesus that's controllable, the one that's lovable and approachable, and that's certainly an image of who Jesus is and his mercy and his compassion as he touches the leper, as he loves on the unlovable. And yet there's a vision in chapter eight of a power of Jesus, a might of Jesus, an authority of Jesus that has authority over creation and the spirits itself. And I think we get sometimes confused between these two diverse pictures of our Lord. And out of this, Matthew's giving us a new vision of what does it mean really to follow Jesus as he is. So let's jump back into this story. Because the first person that comes is a scribe. Now a scribe means educated. This is someone who would take the Old Testament and he would make copy after copy after copy, which means he, he knew the Hebrew scriptures. So more than likely, he also taught. This was a person with influence, with authority, with respect in his culture. And notice in verse 19, the scribe came up to him and he says, teacher, that's an important word. I'm gonna follow you wherever you go. The assumption is I know where you're going. I know what life is going to be like and I am ready. I know who you are. Now, there's a number of ways to understand this statement. I'm gonna follow you wherever you go. Some say that maybe this scribe was a little prideful, looks at the disciples, not very many educated men among the group. We got a few carpenters, fishermen, Jesus. I'm gonna raise the influence of your team. Could you imagine having someone like me? I know you're having some issues with the religious leaders. I could be a mediator. I've got a few degrees. I've got some respect. Most of your guys, they're not very well respected. They're not trusted. They're not viewed well. 
I'm viewed well. What if I was on your team? Could be he approached Jesus with a little pride. It could also be he simply just doesn't know who he's talking to and he doesn't realize what following Jesus means. And so, verse 20, Jesus' response is to sober him. He says, foxes, they have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man, the servant, has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is the son of man and the son of man is an image of service. Jesus has come not to be served, but to serve. Now, this scribe has lived a pretty good life in his day. He's teaching at the temple. He's around the temple all times. He's got a great place to lay his head. Everybody respects him. He's got a position of power. And Jesus is saying to be my disciple is to walk into opposition. It's to find yourself under oppression. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said something about the difficult path of discipleship, that there's a broad road that leads to life. See, and this scribe is saying, hey, I I see the broad road, Jesus. You're on it. It's wide. It's easy. I know what that life is like. I'm ready to come in. And what Jesus is doing as this scribe says, I want to follow you, is he's sobering him to the reality, one of who he is, but what it means to truly follow him. Are we allowing Jesus' words to dictate what it means to follow him? Or do we kind of take some of those words out? You know, years ago, the German theologians would sometimes take out sections of the New Testament. Did you know this? It made the Bible shorter, easier to read, I guess, in that way. But they would remove certain aspects of his power, his might, certain words to kind of dwindle it down. They called it to the real Jesus. And I think all of us have a Bible like that. That we approach Jesus and say, hey, this is how it's going to work. I I think this is where you're going to go. And Jesus says, I need you to leave your expectations aside and trust who I am. Do you know who you're talking to? Do we believe? And are we wrestling with Jesus as, as he's made known? Now, the challenge here in verse 19 is that this scribe addresses Jesus as teacher. And I didn't know this, but there's only one other person, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, Now, in other gospels, this word teacher is used often, but in the gospel of Matthew, only Judas calls Jesus a teacher. So there's something about the way he sees Jesus. There's something that's lacking, and Jesus is showing him the reality of what it means to be a disciple. It comes at a cost. So if the first disciple, this scribe, was someone who was kind of moving too fast, I know where you're going, I know what it looks like to follow you, I'd suggest the second one we're introduced to in verse 21 is someone who's moving way too slow. Watch this. And another of his disciples, so notice again, disciples, so this is someone who's been with Jesus, this isn't a novice, doesn't just show up, he's listening to what Jesus is saying, but realize, even though he understands his teaching, he doesn't understand his identity. It's possible for us to make Jesus in our image in the way we we want to see him rather than who he is. And he says, Lord, okay, better title, right? Not just teacher. You're Lord. You're the creator. You have all authority. But here comes, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's a little shocking because it sounds like from my cultural lens, my dad died on Friday. The wake is on Wednesday. Jesus, the funeral's on Friday. I'm in Saturday. 
All right, I'm back in town and we're ready to do this. But see, that's not the language that Jesus is working in. If his dad had died that day, he would not be there. Because see, the Jews, the Hebrew people would bury a body on the day that the person died. They had great reverence. You know, even in a war, and a battle, often the Hebrews would actually bury the bodies of their enemies because they honored what God had created. They had great reverence for the body. So his dad didn't just die. This isn't Jesus being cold. The idea is more than likely what this man is saying is he's using some kind of a cultural reference. And bury my father could be he's not dead yet, but maybe in a few months, maybe my parents are aging and they're going through some challenges a couple months from now. Or it could be that he did die a few weeks ago and I'm still taking care of his affairs because see, in that culture, there were priorities, just like our culture. Our culture sets out priorities in your life. This is what's most important. Here's what's secondary. Here's what follows along third. And if you want to be good in our culture and seen as successful and influential, you have to have the right priorities. And Jesus is saying, my culture isn't like your culture. My world isn't like your world. I'm the king. And as a king, I am approachable and I am loving and I am compassionate. And yet I am the creator and I have authority. And see, to follow me means I'm going to set the priorities in your life. And so to call Jesus Lord and then say, but first, says you're second. Jesus, you're Lord, but I got me some conditions. I'm doing sex how I want to do sex, and I'm doing money how I do money, and I'm doing relationships how I do relationships, and I won't love my enemies or pray for those who persecute me. I will do politics how I want to do politics. I'm not surrendering to your kingdom. I just want you to be a good teacher. There's something attractive and safe about having a teacher who gives us a little advice than a Lord that demands our allegiance. We're starting to see what Jesus is doing is as he's teaching, he's then revealing who he is and the weight and yet the beautiful weight of what it means to truly follow him and to wrestle with whether or not I've surrendered my life, my mind, my spirit, my, my totality to him. Let me go bury my father. Jesus, I'm in, but just, just wait. And I think each one of us comes to faith with different expectations, different excuses, different conditions. And if you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus described discipleship, the life of following the king this way. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. Meaning, it makes sense. That path makes sense. And if we take Jesus and we just kind of bring him into our cultural ways of doing things, but it doesn't cause us to wrestle, it doesn't cause us to submit, something may be wrong with our Jesus. Verse 14, for the gate that is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. What is he fighting for? Life. I love you. I want you to have life. But see, to have life means I've got to set your priorities just as a parent does for a child, right? I know you want candy, I know you want cake, I know you wanna stay up till midnight, but I gotta set your priorities. 
Because see, I know what tomorrow means and I know what next week means and I know first grade's coming and second grade, I know college is coming and if I could set your priorities for you and set your values, it's gonna help you as you meet the storms and the challenges of life. Jesus is saying, I am your Lord, but will you trust me? Will you trust me? You know, just about every single week I get these emails. Imagine you get them in your own field and these emails that kind of say, okay, here's the secret to success. I got it. This guy's got it. Finally, here it comes into my spam. I'm so excited to read this email. This is how you're gonna grow your church and make a name for yourself and get that book deal and go out on tour. Pastor, I got it for you. This is how to solve the COVID challenge. And I'm not kidding. I mean, you know what I mean. Some of you probably write those emails, got some marketing people. (laughs) And when I read them, my first thought is, oh gosh, it's kind of a wait. It's kind of a wait to me because on the one hand, I know I need to change. I know there's something that I need to change, but it just sounds, you know, just too good to be true. And usually when I open it, what they focus on, for the most part, it's true. You know, focus on, on these aspects of God or focus on this text. But I'll tell you one thing I've never read is, is I never read one of these emails and it says, hey, focus on the cost of discipleship. Focus on what it means to surrender and to submit to Jesus' authority. Focus on his grandeur and his majesty and his might and and what it means to be a disciple and to say to Jesus, you're first and I am second. Usually that's not something that grows the church. As Matthew's doing here, it starts to dwindle the disciples. And I certainly don't, I hope that next week that won't be the case. But do you see where he's taking us? The Sermon on the Mount is great. The mountaintop is wonderful. But what does it actually look like to follow the one who is the creator of all things? You know, Paul in Colossians 1 said, he is before all things and in him all things are held together. He is the head of the body of the church, the firstborn from among the dead so that in all things in Jesus, he might have supremacy. And he created everything, visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authority. All things are created by him and for him. And yet I say to him, but wait, Jesus, I've got some priorities. I got some stuff I got to take care of. And he says, do you see me for who I am or do you simply see me for who you want me to be? Matthew's presenting a picture of Jesus that's going to cause us to wrestle with who he is. And basically what happens is these next two stories is to apply what these two disciples are wrestling with, the storm and these, demean- these, these um, oppressed men. So let's jump into the second story in verse 24. And so here they go. They're, they're leaving to go across the Sea of Galilee. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But... Jesus was asleep. There are times in which it seems that God is at rest, and maybe Jesus is at rest. This is simply a picture of his humanity. He's tired. Or it could be he's under control. And when you know the one who is in control has all authority, you tend to rest well even when there's a storm ranging around you. And yet the disciples are not afraid. They're they're terrified. They understand what life on the Sea of Galilee is like. Now, the Hebrew people, they were not very common to the sea itself, the oceans, but they did understand this lake. And what they're experiencing is harsher, it's greater than a storm they've experienced at this point. So to the point that here they're in this little boat, and you can imagine a big canoe that's a little bit wider, 
and the waves are coming over the bow. And they recognize that if we don't, something doesn't change, we're going to sink. And so Jesus responds, and, and verse 25, and, and they went and they woke him saying, okay, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, now I love this, in the middle of a storm, Jesus says, here's a great time for a lesson. Let's get out our flannel graph. I mean, I could imagine the scene. You're all kind of like losing it together. And Jesus is saying, I want to teach you for a moment. And the words in the Greek, the original language, which the New Testament was written in, are harsher than the English. Because it says here, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? It actually has this idea, why are you so cowardice? Little faiths. Just kind of says, little face, little face. And I don't think Jesus is rebuking their fear in the sense that this is unusual. I think he's rebuking their vision of where this is going. Because did you notice what they think is about to happen? Now, when we read a story like this, here's the challenge, okay? It's hard to keep the last seven chapters in mind and everything the disciples experienced and what Matthew tells us. And we know that there's more that they experienced than what we have simply in Matthew's gospel. So here they are. They've seen this leper be healed, this paralytic healed, cast out demons, teaching, authority, all of that great stuff. His baptism, they've heard these stories and they think this is how the story of Jesus ends. It's done. We are perishing. And if it's we, that means Jesus as well. The story of the gospel, the story of God stops with this storm, have you found yourself in a place where you think the story is written and you know the end? Often storms can be overwhelming, but do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? We're gonna keep going back to it. It's a pretty good message. Because see, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said there are two types of people, two types of builders, two types of foundations. And there are those that build their life on the sand. They ignore my teaching. They don't recognize that I am wisdom itself. And they don't see that my teaching aligns with reality. And so they don't see it has authority, so they don't obey it. But there are those who build their life on the rock, the foundation, which is the authority of who I am and my teaching. And because of that, when the storms come, remember what happens. They're gonna get, you're going to shake. But what allows you to stand is the object of your faith. And if the object of your faith is Jesus, then you're secure, even when life seems perilous. Now that's hard to grasp, and certainly it's hard to grasp when you don't have a big vision of God or a big vision of Jesus, a Jesus that has power and authority over all things. And I don't know if you realized it, but Jesus met their request. Because what happens is he stands and he says, be still. Now, it's kind of cool. We, don't, we know what he says to the disciples. We don't know what he says to the storm. And yet, which one of the rebukes is more memorable? Is it the rebuke of the disciples? Because sometimes somebody has to rebuke us. There's times where God has to rebuke me and say, Jason, listen, this church, it's not your church. You're just a servant. You are, you're a pot of clay. And I've chosen you. I love you. You are cherished. And I've made you with your imperfections and your strengths and your weaknesses in such a way to bless this community, but it's not about you. I don't care how good you are, how smart you are. It's about my spirit and this community centering on the gospel and who I am. I've got to remember that. It's not about me. And sometimes God has to rebuke me, but you realize 
When Jesus rebukes the storm, it turns his rebuke towards me into grace. Because see, now I can trust him because he's got it under control. He knows what's happening. He sees the big picture and he says, I have authority over this stuff. Do you think this bothers me? You think it's too great for me? Now in the mind of a Hebrew, like the disciples, the sea was terrifying. When you read the Old Testament, you go to Genesis 1, 1 in the beginning, God, he created and it says he's hovering over the deep and he's hovering over the waters. The waters mean chaos, darkness and void. And when you go through the Old Testament, you find this language in the book of Daniel. Daniel's this apocalyptic language, just means weird, right? Different heads and creatures. And you know what comes out of the sea? Monsters. So listen, kids, they're not under your bed. They're not in the closet. They're, the Leviathan is at the bottom of the sea because see, that's to ancient people, there was nothing more powerful. That's why it's so shocking in the story of Jonah. God commands the waves, but one who is greater than Jonah is here. And the sign you're gonna see is the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days in the belly, I will rise again. Do you see what Matthew's doing? He's inspiring a greater vision of who Jesus is. But is this the Jesus that we follow and we worship? That though God may seem asleep, he is not asleep, he is still in control. And listen, that's, I'm not trying to minimize how hard that is when we go through loss and we go through sadness and we go through disease and brokenness in life. It's incredibly hard. But when you have this vision of God who loves you and is tender towards you and is near to you and yet is in control of all things, you can say, Father, I'm shaken and yet you keep me secure. See, to that God, I don't have any conditions other than hold me, <laughs> embrace me, I wanna be with you, I give my life to you, for to find life is to lose it, but to lose life for my sake, for this authority's sake in the gospel is to find it. Do you see the beauty that Matthew's trying to present? It's a bigger picture of Jesus because it's a Jesus that enables us to walk through the challenges of life in a way that keeps God at the center. And they marveled. Notice verse 27. Here's the question of all questions at this point. And the men marveled. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? The disciples don't know. But the demons do. That's why there's the next story. Remember I told you Matthew took, takes nine miracles and he's arranging them to give us this ever-progressing vision of Jesus. And in this third story, which I have to be honest, is difficult and weird. If you have questions, I spent most of my week looking into the questions, and I don't have a lot of answers. You know, Matthew is not as concerned with our questions as he is with his agenda of presenting Jesus in a certain way. And so as we kind of jump into this, you may have questions about why pigs, why demons, why off the hill, I'm not quite sure. But see, what he shows us is that these spiritual forces understand who Jesus is in a way that would help us. Verse 28, and when he came to the other side, meaning other side of the lake, to the country of the Gerardines, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one 
could pass that way. So here's the picture. He gets out of the boat, and what is he going to do? Proclaim the good news of the gospel to these communities. And yet these oppressed men stand in his way, and I'm sorry, I gotta do it. I have to go back to the Lord of the Rings. And I love the name Balrock, right? It's just, Tolkien was a master with sounds, and the Balrock wants to cross, and what is, come on, what does Gandalf say? Come on, guys. You shall not pass, right? That's awesome. Yes! Now, this is not a fight between equals. I understand that. Because they go on and say, hey, are you ready to destroy us now? I mean, is this the time? I thought we had a couple more weeks. You said it was coming, but it's not here yet. This is not a fight of equals, but it is a standoff of authority. And notice what these demons say. Verse 29, and behold, they cried out, what did you have to do with us, O Son of God? And that title is important. Earlier, Jesus referenced himself as the Son of Man. The demons say, but you are the Son of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? Now, when you go back in Matthew's gospel, now later on, the son of God's gonna be used more often, but to this point, only two people have identified Jesus as the Messiah, the son of God, the king that sits on the throne, that sets things right, that comes in authority, and yet he comes as the son of man. And so these two images are, in the Old Testament, very different. One has kind of a servant attitude. One is kind of this idea of the one who rules on God's behalf. They're coming together in this passage And yet the first person to identify Jesus as the son of God is his own father. That when he was baptized, the father blessed him. The father, realize, let's back up, rewind. The father, God, blessed Jesus, the son of God, and said, you're my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Your identity is in me. I'm pleased with you before you've done anything. Jesus needed the blessing of the Father. We need the blessing of the Father. The second time it shows up is in Matthew chapter four. When the tempter shows up, the Father knows, but the tempter knows. He says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself off this temple. See, the disciples, as they're watching Jesus, they don't know who he is. But see, these spirits, these malevolent spirits know. And they say, in verse 29, have you come to torment us before the time? I thought there was still time left. And now, verse 30, a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And again, why herds of pigs? Now, we do know pigs were considered unclean. And it's clear there's this theme of uncleanness. But why did they want to go into pigs? I don't know. And why did Jesus say Okay, I don't know. And so, but they came out of the pigs and behold, the whole herd, why did they go down the steep bank? I'm not sure. They drowned. I know why they drowned because pigs can't, can't swim. <laughs> Jonah, I got that one. That, yeah, he's impressed right now. But it, I'll tell you, it's an odd story. It is, it's, it's strange. Culturally, we're so distant from it and it's helpful to read it within its cultural context, but even the guys that read it in its cultural context, it's, it's, a, it's difficult, it's hard to understand. And see, some of you, I imagine you're sitting here right now and say, yes, that's my Jesus, that's his authority, that's his power, and some of you are sitting here thinking, you expect me to believe this? It's 2021, demons, demonic powers, 
What are we supposed to do with this? And I want you to understand a few things, and we're not gonna get into the apologetics of the demonic realm today. Maybe we need to. That could be another sermon for another day. But Jesus believed in the spiritual realm. And Jesus rose from the dead. And my apologetic is I tend to trust the one who rose from the dead. That's kind of where I go. If you need to borrow that sometime, you can take that with you. It's free. But you trust the one who has the authority. And, if Jesus, and that's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. If Jesus hadn't risen, we're still in our sins. We're still futile. But if he has risen, then I have to, to some degree, surrender myself to him and say, Father, okay, I'm struggling with this. Part of this is because it's disturbing, and it's disturbing to them back then as well. It's disturbing to us. But the New Testament does understand the distinction between mental illness and demonic possession and physical illness. They didn't see a demon behind every rock. And just like us, we know that we are complex creatures, that physically, if I am weak, I may be spiritual. That influences me spiritually and mentally and emotionally. And we are one whole human being broken in every single dimension and way. And all of that kind of comes together. And what the demonic realm is, is it agitates the evil in the world, that it, it goes further than it intends to, that we intend to. Have you ever seen something go a little bit further? Have you ever seen somebody sit in bitterness? And I was about to go back to the Lord of the Rings, that guy that, you know, you know what I mean? You guys do, you know the, the king, anyways. I forgot his name, sorry. But when you sit under something like that, some bitterness, it starts to warp you, doesn't it? Do you see their face begin to change? You see the complexion of their color begin to change? And what the demonic realm does is it agitates evil, it takes it beyond. And see, we sometimes wanna just live in the material that this is just the result of us as human beings, as creatures and creation, doing evil to one another, but see, the demonic takes it, takes it further. And what's the heart of the demonic? Do you know what it is? It's a lie. It's a different interpretation of reality. Think of that. God's not in control. Storm's winning. He's asleep. You're gonna perish. Let me ask you, how different was that interpretation from reality? <laughs> Jesus is with you. He's in control. He's revealing his authority and he's about to calm the storms, but you can't see it. You've got to place your faith in the object of your faith, which is the one who has authority. In this story, it's, it's challenging. It's, it's difficult. You know, there was a, an article in the Washington Post in 2016 by a doctor named Richard Gallagher. He's a board-certified psychiatrist, a professor at New York Medical College. Through his psychiatric work, he came to the conviction that there is such a thing as demonic forces, and this is what he says. As a man of reason, I have had to rationalize the seemingly irrational Questions about how a scientifically trained physician like myself can believe such outdated and unscientific nonsense as I have been asked. Well, I have a simple answer. What I have done is I honestly weigh the evidence. Now, anthropologists agree that nearly all cultures have believed in spirits, and the vast majority of societies, including our own, have recorded dramatic stories of spirit possession. Despite varying interpretations, multiple depictions of the same phenomena in astonishingly consistent ways, 
offer cumulative evidence of their credibility, meaning every culture has witnessed the existence of spirits in all places and all times. So either we have arrived to a place where nobody else has gained the wisdom that we have gained, or maybe we miss something. And what he goes on to say in this article, which was fascinating, is that in his psychiatric work, he has sat with people who start speaking languages they had never learned. Stories of individuals who had a strength that was greater than their human ability, who had knowledge about things that otherwise they would have had knowledge. And as he studied and as he cared for others, he recognized the demonic and the spiritual realm. It makes sense out of these stories. So let's finish this up. Verse 33, the herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. They don't like stories like this either. Here's this Jewish exorcist. They don't know who he is, but he's come from the Jewish territory. He's crossed over the waters with these blue-collar workers and here is this man who Luke, Mark and Luke say have been chained. They, this, they tried to chain this guy and they couldn't hold him and he's sitting there in his right mind. And like most people, they want nothing to do with Jesus. So let me ask and conclude, what do we do with this? You know, Matthew, I don't know if you realize this, he's writing these stories some 30 years after the resurrection. And as he's writing this story, these stories, many of the disciples, first of all, were in leadership which why would Matthew include stories like what happened on the boat where they kind of blew it? If you're gonna be in leadership, you would think you'd wanna look good, and yet, could you imagine that board meeting? And when somebody's questioning Matthew, weren't you the one that was afraid and terrified when the waves were coming? How, why, we're gonna trust you now? This isn't a good look for the disciples, but beyond that, see, what the early church was facing in that time was a storm, was a terror, was an overwhelming fear. They were under persecution, they were under opposition. And the question is, who is this Jesus? Can I trust him? And I think what Matthew's trying to do, one, he's, to, he's trying to challenge the way we see Jesus, but he's giving you a fuller picture of who he is, that on the one hand, Jesus is compassionate. He is merciful. He is kind. He is gentle. He can touch the leper. He is approachable. He can heal Peter's mother-in-law. And yet, with his very words, he calms the storms. He casts out the oppressed. This is your Jesus, but do we have conditions? Are we willing to say, Jesus, you're first. I want your kingdom and your values to be my kingdom and my values. I think Matthew's giving us a fuller picture of Jesus because see, that's the Jesus we need. That's the Jesus that overcomes death. That's the one who realized was cast out of the city to a place called Golgotha, which is the place of the skull, the place of the tombs, the place where the demons were cast. And on the cross, what Jesus did was he destroyed evil itself. How? By taking evil upon himself so that you and I, through his forgiveness, his life, we can be set free. This is our Jesus, and he is big enough for the trials that we face. But church, is he our foundation? Is he the one we're trusting in? Do we see him for who he is? Father, help us. I pray for those that are going through challenges. Lord, I don't want to minimize the ease. I don't want to minimize the difficulty and the pains of storms and the challenges of this world. And yet, Father, 
you created all things, you sustain all things, in you all things have their beginning. And Jesus, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Not famine and not swords, not nakedness, not oppression. Because I believe neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, may through the power of the Spirit your love overwhelm us that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, why would he not also with him freely give us all things? Father, open our eyes, open our eyes, open our eyes to see the Jesus that we follow who has words of authority, who knows the challenges and yet is approachable and longs to hear from his children. Father, enable us this week to trust you and help us, Father, as a community, not to lead each other just to good advice or to good teaching, but to lead us to our Savior and our Lord. Help us to be a community that draws each person back to you. Help us, Father. We love you in Jesus' name.